0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. We're joined today by Michael Rhinowesser, president and founder of the BTI Consulting Group. For more than 30 years, Michael has looked at every angle of the law firm client relationship through the lens of the client experience. He has conducted and analyzed over 20,000 one-on-one interviews with C-level executives to discover their expectations, needs, priorities, preferences, and opinions about outside counsel. This research has established BTI as the industry leader in delivering insights on how clients acquire, manage, and evaluate their law firm. It has been incredibly influential in shaping how we think about client service today. Join us for a fascinating conversation on how his love of music helped him learn how to become a great writer, the impact of the great resignation on client relationships, and his number one tip to improve client service post-pandemic. Thanks for listening. Michael, how are you today? Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, I'm very good,
1: Steve. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: I appreciate the time. You're president of BTI Consulting Group. If any of our listeners don't know about BTI, they're probably listening to the wrong podcast. But uh, before we talk about your work with uh, BTI, talk to us a little bit about your lead up to BTI because you're an MBA grad and a big four alumni, which is not a typical path to looking at analytics around the legal profession.
1: Well, my path to where I got to um, I'll also throw in the I passed the CPA exam in the District of Columbia, so I've got the cold analytical rigor to just look at things and analyze them and take my emotions out of it. So that probably helps me in my analytical approach. But the way I found my path to doing what I do today is really a combination of of two things. One is early in my career at PwC, I worked with a number of law firms, one of which was the dissolution of a friendly law firm, rather it was a, a friendly dissolution of a law firm as these partners were going to become partners in another firm. And as you dissolve a law firm, you learn a tremendous amount about how they operate, how they split up their money, how they get along, how their culture is the same and different from the partnership agreement. And it's just a fascinating look at the world of law firms. So after that, I had a long series of Clients who were law firms ranging in different sizes, helping them with a number of kind of issues related to clients markets. And then fast forward a a few years and I find myself at PwC being asked to start an experimental practice that would sell a group of services to clients instead of selling individual services to individuals within an organization. So a basket of services to an industry, if you will. And that was a tremendous amount of fun. Did work with high tech firms as well as law firms, interestingly enough. But that was the same period that the big accounting firms were going through a period where all of a sudden clients became much more demanding around fees and they wanted to know why each of the firms was different from each other. And client service became a much bigger issue than it had been so i was part of the us national team to try to solve and figure out what to do through all that some of that fed the experimental practice i ended up running so as i did that and remembering and dealing with my experience with law firms i kind of looked out and said law firms are going to be going through this this it's inevitable and they'll go through the same kinds of pressures so i kind of you know picked up my bags and Founded BTI editorially. I was taking a walk in an August afternoon that I had taken off a day. And my wife was seven months pregnant. And I, I turned to her as we were walking our Airedale and said to her, I think it's time. And she said, For what? And I said, To start. And that was the beginning of BTI. And I haven't looked back in 30 something odd years.
0: Uh, it's seven months uh, pregnant. That had to be quite the leap of faith she was taking with you.
1: Yes, she didn't. She didn't tell me she was nervous until two years ago.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't. I'll I'll leave that one. Um, So, before we talk about BTI, your experience with PwC, which I know now goes back more than a few years, but there's been a lot of discussion in the industry. And on your website, you've got a you've got a little blog post around Larry Bird and themes around the Big Four moving into the legal space. What did your personal experience working for PwC and for a big four accounting firm, albeit dated, I get that, sort of inform you as to the goals of the big four and how they can compete with law firms? What are the differentiators that they bring?
1: The differentiators will will fall into a couple of categories. One is, you know, they can be strategically patient. They will go through and, you know, one of the leaders of it wasn't TWC, but one of the other big accounting firms, we had this discussion about how you make change in these big accounting organizations and where everyone is so conservative. And he he got fairly animated, banged his fist on the table and said, you grow your wings on the way down. And the point of that is, you know, we have a plan. We think it's going to work, but we know it's going to change. We know we're going to have to do some things differently. We know that we think we have the talent, but we may need to add more talent, different talent. We may have to pivot and change, but we're going to figure it out on the way. We're not going to stop and we're not going to not do it because we're not you know, 100% sure, but we're 100% sure we can figure it out. And that's a, that's one of the things that's when they decide to do something that's really impressive. They do it. And they'll they'll change, and they realize that it's never the path that you lay out. But that doesn't mean you don't start with a path.
0: Oh, no, that's that's right. They've also got the resources to.
1: That's correct. They've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of people, and their partners are very dedicated. So it's a you know it's a good combination if you're if you're trying to enter new markets like they are.
0: One of the other characteristics. Now I view them completely from the outside. I've never worked for a big four accounting firm, but one of the characteristics I've seen is their ability to use multiple disciplines to solve client problems, which is not typically a hallmark of law firms. Am I reading that right? And if so, is that a material competitive advantage for them in this market?
1: It's a material competitive advantage in that they do know how to bring people together to different, to deliver a different, you know, a basket of services to a client. They're they're very good at account management, if you will, but understand that they've been at it, you know, they really took it, started taking it seriously 35 years ago. So they've kind of got the science down, they've got the art down, they, you know, kind of polish the tools and systems that they have. I think there's no reason law firms can't get there and get there faster, but They do also have the benefit of experience of, you know, having their kind of like growing your wings on the way down. If like, okay, if that doesn't sell the basket of services, this will, and they'll keep trying.
0: Let's back up to your founding of BTI. I have to ask you this because one of the characteristics of the research and the papers and the information that you publish is you're able to take incredibly useful information, but communicate it in a way where it resonates. with a listener, which is not always a result from consulting firms or data analytics firms. Sometimes the materials they publish don't have the same accessibility that yours do. Where did you learn that? I assume that comes from you. Where did you learn that skill? Is that just something you're born with or you weren't an English major or anything, were you?
1: I was not an English major and I was never accused of being an English major. And I, I joke that my English professors would probably be, you know, rolling on the floor if they knew what I did for a living. But the, you know, my, my writing background actually goes back to my college days and I have a passion for music, especially starting in the fifties going all the way to today. And the reason that passion is relevant is one of the first things I did when I got to college. I was in the radio business or I was a DJ for a little while at an FM station. I went to the school newspaper and told them I wanted to write music reviews and I wanted to write about music. And I don't know what you know about the journalism world, but they say, okay, you have, you know, 526 words, go for it. And they're very, you know, they budget their words and their, you know, space isn't so much an issue with the Internet. But I was lucky in that I had editors that would just show me you know, the words I didn't need, the sentences I didn't need. And then you compound that with when I started writing proposals at PwC and the mantra came out was, you know, how short, you know, everybody that is reading a proposal or reading an article, everybody is time limited. So how can you make it short? How can you make it sweet? And how can you make it compelling? And I can tell you that it's something I think about every single time that I sit down to write something.
0: Well, you produce remarkable stuff in that respect. Well, thank you. Michael, it's, uh, you know, speaking as someone who used to use your materials as, in a leadership capacity back when I had that role, it's very useful to communicate to partners or other key members of the team when the material is so accessible as your material is. So that's got to be a great advantage for BTI.
1: Well, I would hope so. And I can tell you, I have two people who, you know, help me edit my blog, especially. And the good news is, is they are brutally, brutally honest with me and telling me how I can shorten it, how we can be more accessible. So I'd like to take all the credit, but I I do get some serious
0: help. Yeah, we all do. We all do. So you found BTI. What was the mission when you founded it? And how has that mission changed, if at all, over the years?
1: The mission... Really started out helping our clients understand their clients and markets, which clearly have big points of overlap. The only thing that has really kind of evolved over the years is that's still the centerpiece. But now, especially in the last five years, we're doing a lot with understanding associates, understanding junior partners, and understanding, you know, more about firms as opposed to individual attorneys. So it's almost turned into this full 360 look. You know, you've got the marketplace, you've got the attorneys, you've got the associates. And you've got the partners, and everyone has uh, those three groups. All have different viewpoints. So if you can find a way to marry those, to have you find opportunities and find you know ways to use them to your advantage, then you know that's a real plus. And I've always found that organizations who spend a lot of time studying the market tend to outperform those that don't. It's just having watched so many clients and so many organizations. If you can tap into those, you know, kind of idiosyncratic client needs or bring a unique focus from the client market perspective, that is always one of the big, you know, separators from organizations that do tremendously well and everybody else.
0: Your methodology, I suspect most of our listeners know your methodology at this point, but you use a methodology that's different from most Law firm, market research folks, in that you go directly to the source, if I can describe it that way. Talk to us about your original methodology. And for example, I'm I'm interested as you move into analysis of associates and junior partners, how does that methodology apply to those groups of stakeholders?
1: Well, the methodology, the core methodology really hasn't changed as much as I'd like to. You know, we certainly changed our approach and we use technology and we've come up with, you know, I think, better questioning. But the core is to, you know, in in business, you want to go, as you said, to the source. So clients are the source. They make the ultimate decisions. If you're trying to understand associates, you know, asking the associates and, you know, the other part of our methodology is we use a lot of what they call, and I don't want to get too technical into the research world, but we use a lot of experience-based questions where they don't lend themselves to a yes or no. And then, you know, you get a lot more insight and information and things that would be overlooked in a typical research initiative. And those are the kinds of insights that will often enable you to find what it is that, you know, will separate you from everybody else or the market need that nobody else is seeing. Because if you're asking yes, no questions or if someone's interested in something They may say no, but when you talk to them about what they're doing, they'll, you'll find out that, you know, the things that they're doing lend themselves to, you know, a certain type of help that you could offer. It may pose problems that they don't realize, but you get a much richer picture. So trying to marry that up with, you know, the way associates are thinking, the way partners are thinking. We have a couple of clients where we found some pretty positive disconnects, meaning that, you know, firms were convinced that. They were not innovative nor a source of good ideas. And the clients came back overwhelmingly and said, you know, this firm in particular is tremendously innovative and they're full of good ideas. And I, I call them when I'm trying to brainstorm something. Well, positioning yourself around that is very different than positioning yourself as someone who doesn't think they're really, you know, out on the leading edge of ideas. And it, it emboldened probably, I'm going to say, about 30 partners to really, you know, embrace talking to their clients in a way they hadn't before, which resulted in a lot of business for them. So you can you can kind of take these disconnects and put them together and offer opportunity and many times the kind of hard data justification as to why you want to convince one of your partners to do something who may not think it's the greatest idea in the world.
0: Data can be a powerful tool in shaping behavior and results, can't it? Uh, We find it. I mean, the thing that I love
1: about putting data in front of people is everybody's got an opinion about it.
0: (laughs) Particularly lawyers. Sometimes they have more than one. Right. That, you know, I I like to
1: say that I've been deposed by some of the best litigators in the whole world, but I've never been in a courtroom. So
0: (laughs) I I can imagine. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the GC role and the law department role. What changes and trend lines do you see happening with the role of the GC coming out of the pandemic?
1: We see a couple of things that are, I think, impact corporate counsel and impact law firms. The first one is tremendous turnover. 36% of all corporate counsel have been in their role less than two years. That means that they joined during the pandemic period. Some of them have not met their staff in person. Some of them have not met key people. Some of them have you know, not talked to their law firms. Now, there's something to think about, right? They've been in their role two years and the law firms are so busy or don't have a protocol in place to reach out to new clients. They don't have a formal onboarding process. And so this particular group has a very low satisfaction rate with law firms. If anybody listening to this, if you have a client, go check LinkedIn. If your client has been in their role for two years or less, I would be finding a way to reach out to them and talk to them because they feel like they were ignored in a time when they need tremendous help. So that would be like the first thing that we noticed.
0: You know, what's so interesting to me, Michael, by you saying that is that on the one hand, I'm not surprised. On the other hand, I find it shocking. Oh, well,
1: yeah, it's, it's shocking. The clients are shocked. But I think what you've got on the other side of it is, you know, when I talk to the attorneys about it, they say, well, I'm, you know, I'm flat out, I'm flat out. I don't have time. And my response is always, so I don't mean to be rude, but, you know, it's kind of like, so you don't have time to keep your client.
0: That's what you're saying, isn't it?
1: And it's, it's ultimately, that's not their intent and certainly not what they're saying, but that's what the net effect is. So, you know, finding ways, that's one big kind of trend The second big trend is the nature of the helping need has changed. The need for what I call kind of short situation-specific advice has gone up substantially versus what I would call big ticket advice, meaning like we're thinking of making a complicated, eminent, you know, acquisition. So how do we plan for that? Or it looks like we've got a, a wage an hour issue. How do we plan for that? This is, okay, the guidelines for vaccines look like they're going to be X. And then uh, the next day, it looks like they're going to be Y. And then the next day, it looks like they're going to be Z. Every corporate counsel is getting a call from somebody in top management saying, okay, so what do we do? Okay, what do we do? What do we do today? Okay, because we have employees calling. We have, you know, some of these large corporations have, you know, enormous, you know, workforces. And they need the short-term you know, counsel to be able to go back to management because there's very few corporate counsel that can say to their bosses or their management teams, you know, I'll be back to you in three days or, or a week. It, it, they need, they're need, they making real-time decisions. So the need for that kind of acute care, if you will, is another big trend, which we find a lot of attorneys are not that comfortable giving. So that, you know, kind of adds to what their situation is. And then the third is is the peak workload workload is the highest it has ever been probably in the history of law. they have more litigation cases their A is going at a, a record pace despite last year's tremendous MA and despite the headwinds of geopolitics they're looking at their workload and trying to figure out and you know it's kind of interesting about 18 months ago, Between 18 months ago and today, we have heard the word planning around litigation more times than I've probably heard it in the last 30 years. Really, They want to get ahead of it. They want to make sense out of it. Not that they don't understand it, but, you know, they're looking at, you know, an average of, you know, 300 to 350 active litigation matters in many of these large corporations. If you're going to a medium-sized company, you know, you're looking at 10 to 15, which is you know, in both cases, 70% more than they're used to, or that they've experienced pre-pandemic. So they want to know, how do we plan for this? How do we, you know, manage the cases that we know don't have big exposure? How do we manage the cases? How do we sort them out? How do we, you know, approach them in a strategic way so that we're minimizing our risk, we're minimizing our exposure, but we're not ignoring something that's little that the other side, even though it's small, is making a really big deal out of it. And may come back to bite us in a way we don't quite understand. And then, you know, timely as this conversation is, they just released the rules around ESG disclosure. And I got to tell you, the corporate counsel will tell you that there is no definition there.
0: (laughs) I've heard that. Yes.
1: There's absolutely no definition. And I had one general counsel tell me yesterday of a very large organization that, you know, yet another complicated millstone around my neck. You know, it's like, okay, how do you get this one right? And the point being is that, you know, there's so much new, vague, complex. high visibility, that having that dialogue with outside counsel has become so valuable. Yet we go back to the first statistic where, you know, 36% of corporate counsel haven't heard from their law firms. So the big trend is the need for really practical short-term advice, the turnover, and needs they haven't had before. So I would think those trends add up to a real opportunity for a law firm to grow with a client, but, you know, everyone's got to make their own strategic decisions.
0: A couple of things that really struck me in what you just said, but let me let me follow one path, which is this increased risk complexity. At the same time, you've got business, the flow of legal work that's business as usual, that you've got to handle internal cost pressures on the legal department. But an ever more diverse service industry big four outsourcing, law firms, big firms, small firms, tech companies, your general counsel, and you've got all of these competing demands. How are they, and I know everybody does it differently and I'm asking you to generalize, but this is an increasingly complex risk management role at the same time, an increasingly complex purchasing set of decisions. How are GCs or in-house counsel re-evaluating how they balance those two things, particularly when you've got their law firms not even bothering to reach out and call them?
1: Well, I think what they're doing is, you know, they're pretty good at figuring out who will help them and who are the people to call. So they're kind of, I use the term cherry picking, but general counsel have extensive networks with each other, and they will share with each other who is helpful, who isn't. Some of them have kind of set up their own informal workshops uh, where they all jump on a Zoom call for 40 minutes in a week to share Kind of think not anti, you know, trust or competitive issues, but, you know, general trends that they're seeing, what they've heard other companies are doing. So between, I think it was 61% of corporate counsel hired a new law firm for a major matter last year. So that tells you that, you know, they keep looking, you know, they're, they're sophisticated consumers. They're, they're going to go out, they're going to look. I've had a number of experienced corporate counsel who tell me they can tell within five minutes whether a law firm or an individual attorney can help them. That's sometimes more than they need. They can tell the enthusiasm, the commitment, the questions they ask, how they introduce themselves. So they're shopping, they're, you know, referring work to you know internal peer referrals. But once the the other side of it is once they find someone they can work with, you know, they tend to stick in a lot of workflows there. So you're seeing a lot of movement, a lot of it's kind of a variation of that theme we talked about, growing your wings on the way down. They're just kind of going through the process. They don't sit back and say, gee, I wish I'd hear from my law firm. They just pick up the phone. The typical corporate counsel has somewhere between 17 and 21 years experience. So they come in with a network of firms. They come in with a network. And the other you know, big thing to understand is, in my opinion, that when there is a new corporate counsel you know, they do have their own network of firms. So they're going to reach out to, because that network of firms is unlikely to be wherever they go. So they immediately kind of reach out and, you know, you have this kind of floating, you know, turnover or you develop new relationships or you might send out an RFP. Two years is a peak RFP point. So, um, you know, they kind of get their way through. But generally, if you talk to corporate counsel, They deal with, I want to say, it's 24 partners a month that they talk to. Wow. And they will tell you that one or two stand out as being excellent, that they can pick up the phone anytime they've got something to say, they hear from them. So that leaves what? Two out of 24. So fortunately, the quality of information out of the two is enough to get them through. So it's kind of an interesting mosaic that they weave.
0: It is. You know, and one of the one of the interesting things I've noticed in spending time with your research is, particularly in the questions of change and innovation and doing things differently, there, there's a real appetite for that. But there are certain constants, and you're, you're hitting on them in terms of the relationship, the, the underlying trust that I can pick up the phone and I can get the answer that I need. Has the pandemic and moving to a virtual world changed that component, or has it just changed the tools and ways in which we build relationships
1: I think it's changed the tools. I, I don't see in all my, you know, even if I just start with the research of the last, you know, 18 months or two years, I don't see how you can develop a deep relationship with a client without voice-to-voice communication. It could be on the phone. It could be on Zoom. It could, you know, pick your medium. But without voice-to-voice communication, you may get a matter. You may get a small matter But, you know, most of the attorneys I meet in every firm want the big, meaty, complex stuff. I I don't think I've ever in all my years met an attorney that says, well, I'm really looking for the drone work that's boring and is the commodity. So if you want to be in that group, I just don't like you said, the tools change and making use of the tools is great. But without that direct voice to voice communication, the big, complex and the, the lasting, enduring relationships Are going to be extraordinarily difficult to develop.
0: One of your blog posts is Seven Trends That Law Firms Ought to Know from General Counsel. It's an interesting blog. But one of the uh, points is you said 63% of legal decision makers prefer to meet virtually. That's an interesting statistic to me because there is this ongoing debate about are we going back to normal, which for a lot of law firms means back in the office, back in in person meetings. You seem to be concluding that that's not what clients as a general proposition want.
1: Yeah, that's about two thirds of a client base say, you know, there's just no need to meet in person. I mean, we could you know, virtual's fine. When you get into complex situations or you get into nuanced situations, they want in person, super high risk. They want in person. But, you know, most of the time, as one or more general counsel would put to me, A lot of times the conversations are just exchanges of information. It's important information. It has to be, it has to be, you know, exchanged, but, you know, it doesn't have the, you know, super nuanced, you know, thinking it through, you know, super real time body language kinds of of conversations. So, so many corporate councils, since they've been working hybrid, even a few of them said, I never thought I would want to work in a hybrid environment. Never in my entire life. And now, you know, I went into the office the other day. This is, you know, quoting or paraphrasing. And boy, there I was on the train and there I was in traffic and there I was.
0: And (laughs) We forget that there's downsides to doing it in person as well.
1: And then when they got to the office,
0: everyone's still wearing
1: masks. And I'm not saying don't wear masks. I'm just saying they get there. Everybody's masked up. You have to stay in your office. You know, people get in the office and there's a lot of, it's great to see people is the feedback I get, but it's awkward. Do you wave? Do you say hello? Do you fist bump? Do you hug? Do you, I mean, some of these people is, I don't have to tell you, you have, you know, 20, 30 year relationships and okay. What, what, there are no formal rules. So, you know, the, the idea of working in a hybrid environment is very attractive and. It's, um, you know, I, I've i had a, more than a few corporate counsel say that the virtual meetings just seem so much more efficient than the in-person meetings. Everybody gets on, they get right to it and they get off. And that's a plus as well.
0: It is interesting. I, I've talked to a few people about their experience with virtual meetings and the one piece they seem to miss is the right before the meeting and the right after the meeting, the, the casual conversation, the sort of the, the, the pickup points if you were that that's hard to replicate in a virtual meeting. But the overall efficiency is certainly overwhelming.
1: Right, right, exactly. And I think that goes back to, you know, so many, you know, corporate counsel say we're exchanging information, but to your point, I've always said that in business development, when you're making a business development on a you know, call on a client, you're gonna learn more on the walk to the elevator than you're gonna learn and try to replicate that virtually is a challenge i know you know some business developers are so good they can do it but that you know like you said that's like you know i've always observed that it as it's almost like a catalyst event like you have this meeting and then when it's done you're like okay here's what i heard whoa and you you get to kind of filter it and bring it all together and you're right that is not there in the virtual meeting
0: right I know we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you sort of one other sort of topic to talk about. You talked about the turnover in in in-house counsel, yet the providers are also experiencing enormous turnover. It's so-called great resignation. How are law firms managing this in light of what clients need? Clients want stability in their service teams, and that's very difficult to provide. What are you seeing as trend lines in that respect?
1: Well, you know, you... I don't need to tell you the turnover within law firms is, you know, higher than it's been in quite some time. Clients, you know, they're of two minds. It's annoying. Um, It costs money and they lose productivity. But, you know, they kind of say it is what it is. What can I do? Somebody leaves. And then, you know, it gets where it gets awkward is where the firm doesn't have a smooth replacement. You know, where someone's in a litigation and, you know, the partner leaves, or someone's in an investigation and someone leaves, and the firm says, you know, we're, we're working on who the replacement would be. And the client is like, excuse me, you haven't thought about this. You know, so, you know, clients. They're frustrated, but they accept it. You know, that's kind of one of those situations that they can't do it. But I, you know, what I do know is the firms that handle it with, this is one of those situations that, you know, grace is as important as the substance how do they learn that their partner is left? Do they read about it in corporate council news? Do they hear about it from a peer or does somebody from the firm call them or does a partner call? I mean, all these things make a big difference, but it's very rare that you'll find a client that says, oh, good. I'm certainly glad that that partner left. It's always only a question of, you know, how much will it cost in terms of time and money? And the time, frankly, comes first. You know, I just lost how much time, you know, I think this may be the catalyst that convinces firms that client teams are going to be more important, that more connections with more attorneys is going to be more important. But right now, it's just amazing how peak demand, which exceeds the ability to supply it, clients sit back and there's not a lot they can do. And then at some point in time, they will change behaviors to overcome and, and manage these situations. But when the workload is what it is, they find ways to get through
0: Absolutely. And speaking of time, we're we're out of it. Okay. But Michael, thank you so much. For those of you listening, links to PTI Consulting are in the show notes as are links to Michael's Twitter page where he's under the Mad Clientist, which I think is just a fabulous Twitter handle and his LinkedIn page as well. Michael, thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed our discussion.
0: Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.